And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're making our way through this book. If you're new here, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here. It's an absolute delight to be with you. I hope you're having a meaningful and good Thanksgiving. Uh, I just got back from the Northwest visiting my mother and some extended family, and it's just always good to be able to see loved ones and just express gratitude for all that God is doing. I have always found it fascinating to find out what motivates people, what makes them tick, why do they live in such a way that is that's like recognizable, especially folks that have like left their mark either in this present day or in history. And this really has gotten started when I was very young. As soon as I got to learn how to read, I've been reading biographies, all sorts of different people, uh, outdoorsmen, Western, um, folks in the military, all sorts of presidents. Uh, I love reading about like athletes, business leaders. I like to just figure out what, why do they live the way they do? What motivates them? Sometimes I want you to know this is really sobering. And maybe you've seen like some documentaries on different people. I mean, it's pretty popular to kind of document a person's life. And like, you can find things like, wow, that's very interesting. You're like, oh my, that's just tragic, you know? And, but there's also times when you're reading, you're like, you know, there's some things that are really transferable like to my life. And I can learn from these people. And some of the people that I really love to learn, they're like, how is it that you're living the way you are? Are people who have walked with Jesus for a lot of years, and they're like vibrant. They got like love just like emanating from them. There is a vibrancy to their faith. They're not just kind of stale and just like waiting to pass away. They're like alive. They're in the game. They're running the race. And I really like to be around people like that. Because it gets a joy. I'm, I'm motivated. And I, I love to hear their heart. And, you know, you, you're living, but are you living a legacy? A legacy worth remembering. A legacy that's going to leave an impression on your family, in this church, in our community. And if you're like, you know, like, I wouldn't even know how to go about that. Well, that is why the verses we're looking at today, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Friends, this is your passage. If you want to know how to live a legacy, what joy in Jesus looks like, how to be involved in kingdom purposes, how to overcome the challenges and difficulties in life, this is your passage. Because the Apostle Paul is writing his final letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In just uh, a few, perhaps, weeks, days, months, we don't know for certain, he is going to be executed and die for his faith in Christ. But instead of bemoaning all the challenges and difficulties and painful incidents in his life, instead of just coasting into despair and despondency, what he's doing is he's writing about the guiding and enduring convictions of his life. And friends, if we will embrace these, we too will see and live a life, a life of legacy. I will tell you this, that the convictions that you hold guide the life that you live. The convictions you hold will guide the life that you live. Or said another way, the convictions that hold us mold us. So what is it that really drives you, is really going to shape your life? And if you want to know the mindset of living a legacy as a man or woman of God, then that mindset is found here. You need to, first of all, learn to live with no reserves. So take a look, verse 6. He says, 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So the first thing we see about Paul is he's, he's saying, I live my life with no reserve. He refers to his life as a drink offering. And what he's doing is he's calling to mind the Old Testament sacrificial system, and the drink offering was given, it's the final offering after a burnt or a grain offering. They'd make these offerings at the temple as an expression of worship to God, but a drink offering was the pouring out of wine upon that, circ- that sacrifice as it's being poured out. It meant to be an expression of love and devotion to God. Like, my heart finds joy in knowing you, worshiping you, giving you my all. And so he he says, I want you to know that I find my life to be like a drink offering. It's a joyful expression. And I want you to know that you and I, we're pouring our life into something or someone, right? I mean, your life is being poured out, kind of like an hourglass. But for the Christian, it's our privilege and opportunity to pour out our lives as a drink offering to God. And I want you to know that it's a, it's a daily choice of devotion. But for Paul, this, this imagery, to see his life as a drink offering, this isn't the first time he wrote of this. Earlier in the book of Philippians, he writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, he says this, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon, upon the sacrifice and service of Your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Did you see that? He saw his life as being poured out as a drink offering, meaning each day, whether it was a difficult day, a great day, things were going his way, or he's facing some challenges, whether it had been hardship or absolute happiness and delight. But he says, I'm pouring my life out as a drink offering to God for the sacrifice and service of your faith. You see, when God breaks us from just living for us, and I want you to know, like, the the whole ego is like this magnet. It's always like, it's all about me and my life and my feelings. I want you to know that God is looking to break us from the mold of living for self to start living for him and to invest ourselves in the lives of others. And to do so is a great joy and delight. It is a pouring out, and it, at times, can be very costly, and it can take everything out of you, but really, if you're looking for joy in this life, we somehow got the idea like, well, I got to manufacture joy, and I got to accumulate things, and I got to gain all these experiences, and I got to have all of these positions and titles, and it's all about me. I want you to know you're going in the wrong direction. Joy is found in releasing and yielding yourself fully to God And seeing your life being poured out, however, whatever you're doing, whether you're in school, in your job, with your family, in the community, in our church, I'm a drink offering to the sacrifice and service of your faith, and you're going to find joy, joy in Jesus. But I want you to know it's a a daily choice. Devotion is always a daily choice. And notice what Paul is saying. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure has come. This was a word that was used for loosening something, like mooring ropes on a ship when they were being loosed, when the ship was about to sail, or, uh, for instance, like a tent, when it's being pulled up, you're pulling the stakes, you're, you're taking those ropes out. 
What Paul is saying is my ship is about ready to sail. I'm about ready to move into eternity. I'm pulling up the stakes in this earth and in this life because I'm about ready to be in the very presence of God. You see, you and I, if we want to live a legacy, we've got to learn how to live with no reserve, with real devotion to God. I'll tell you this, that if you've been pulling back, it's never too late to start pouring out. Isn't God gracious and generous? And so if you think about it, you and I have the opportunity each day, and let me encourage you, as you begin your day, as soon as you remember, give your life and your day to God. Thank him, express gratitude, and give yourself to him. Ask God, would you do your work in me and through me? And and when we do, we live our life with no reserve. You see, the mindset for men and women of God who live a legacy, it's to live with no reserve. It's also to live with no retreat. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He's living his life with no retreat. The word retreat, it means to act in in such a way that you're pulling back. It's withdrawing from what is difficult, dangerous, or disagreeable. And many people, like, they just basically live their life in retreat. Life is hard. Difficulties come. What happens? We just pull back, right? We're going to hide behind some sort of, like, metal mask. We're going to find some sort of little fortress, and we're just going to hide behind that. That's to retreat. But what Paul is saying here is, if you want to live a legacy, you have to live with no retreat. And notice how he explained it. I have fought the good fight. The word fight there, agonizomai, it's where we get our word agonize. I have agonized. I have fought this fight. And this word was used oftentimes in athletic competitions, right? It's similar today. Like there's some football games like going on today or yesterday. And there was, the fight was on, right? And I can assure you, on the line, it is a fight, okay? They're not just like tapping each other. It's all out war. And they refer to it even sometimes as a fight. And they used that back then 2,000 years ago as well. It was a fight to strive to win, but it was also used in military conflict. They are fighting. You're going to fight to the death. And Paul says, I have fought the good fight. So what kind of fight did he have? Well, I want you to know his fight was very much like our fight. It was a fight to live physically and mentally pure. It was a fight against the encroaching anti-God influences that were all around him. I mean, think of it, Roman Empire. I mean, you've got all sorts of uh, polygamy. You've got homosexuality. You've got all sorts of just greed. You've got people that are just worked over, slavery. You've got all sorts of just evil around you all the time. Temptations everywhere, breakdowns in morals. I want you to know, you want to walk with God in that time or this time? It's going to be a fight. This whole idea of like, I'm going to just be your passive, the passive Christian, that's not going to allow you to live a legacy. You got to fight the good fight. You got to live with no retreat. It was a fight against a, a deteriorating body. I mean, your bodies start breaking down. You know, like when we're young, you're like, no way, right? And then, you know, you kind of crest over certain decade markers, and all of a sudden, your body doesn't function as well. 
It's a fight to keep moving forward and not to be just so decimated by those health issues. And yeah, you've got a body that's breaking down, but you've got a soul that's being built up. It was a fight against Judaizers and paganism. It was a fight against those who were legalizers and turning the Christian faith into a bunch of rules. It was a fight against temptation, against sin. It was a fight to present the gospel, to build disciples. You've got to be in the game. It is proactive. It was a fight not to give in to devastation, discouragement, despair. And he says, I have fought the good fight. And he faced some pretty significant challenges. Obviously, he had been whipped, beaten, maligned, abused. Once he was even left for dead, you know. Uh, He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been slandered so many times, every charlatan that was out there tried to pick him apart. But no matter what, he says, you know, I fought the good fight. And that means in our humanity, there are going to be some days that are just flat out just miserable, right? And it's going to be difficult and painful, and it's not going to go away. And in our humanity, we're going to mess up. We're going to say the wrong thing. We're going to do the wrong thing. We're we're sinners. The only thing perfect about us is our Savior. But to keep moving forward, despite the difficulties and the challenges, friends, that's a fight. You're going to take some hits. He says, I keep moving forward. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have also finished the course. He says, I've run the race. I ran the race God called me to run. And he says, I did it with no retreat. If you've ever been involved in running, when you're competing, we run to win. We're not just jogging along, like this is a pleasant experience, you know. No. If you're a serious athlete and you're a serious runner, you run to win. You know that it is going to cost you. Your body is going to experience all sorts of pain. The the temptation, uh, I know this from firsthand experience, to just like lay down on the side of the track and just like, oh, I'm glad this is over, right? I can finally breathe. It's out there, but you are running to win. And that is the mindset he had. No retreat. Running to such a way that you would win, no matter what the difficulties. It's kind of like running a cross-country race. Now, like in track, There are really, like, no impediments, right? You just run around in circles, right? And that was all I was good for, right? Just run around in circles. But in cross-country, why it's a little different. Why, you got hills and rocks and and mud and a mess, and and sometimes you get narrowed down into a, a path where only one runner can fit, which means that you are going to fight to make sure that you're in there, and, like, elbows get thrown, people end up in trees and stuff like that because there's no one can see, and all of a sudden, there's Johnny, you know, and he's just kind of wrapped around that tree right there. How did that happen? Well, it was called an elbow, you know what I'm saying? And, and like, life is like that. Obstacles, hardships, difficulties. Sometimes it gets so narrow, there are people that are going to want to push you off, people that want to get you down, trip you, spike you, discourage you overwhelm you. But Paul says, you know what? I have finished the course. You may be surprised by the challenges in your life. I know that I have been. When I was younger, I kind of like, yeah, this is, this is, this is, I'll serve God. It's going to be easy sailing. It's always going to work out just right, right? Just the way I would want it, right? Not so much. You have challenges. I'm pretty sure, just looking around, Some of you have gone through things you never thought you would ever face. And it has cut you to the very core of your being. Friends, that is your course. I've got my course. 
But what we do is we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And that's what we do too. We run the race. We keep moving forward. If you have fallen down and you're messed up and you're bloody and you got mud all over you, don't stay there. Pick yourself up or even better yet, what if one of us, we can all come together and get you back on track. Paul says, I finished the course. And then he also said, I have kept the faith. What does it mean to keep the faith? Well, first of all, it means to live life with a dependence upon God, to trust him, to delight in him, to depend upon his strength, to be filled and to walk in the spirit. But to keep the faith also means to keep the doctrines that are given to us in Scripture. Like it says in Jude 3, the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. It is the Bible. It is the Scripture. I have kept the faith. I didn't water it down. I didn't cut out the parts I didn't like. I believed God. I trusted him, and I kept his word. And I'll tell you this, that if you're going to keep the faith, you've got to learn how to give it away, which means you pass it on to others. This is what we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Remember? You, you actually pass it on, pass on the biblical truth to other believers, to the next generation. And Paul says, I have kept the faith. If you were looking for something to really give purpose and absolute meaning to your life, let me tell you where you'll find it. That is in following Jesus Christ. Everything else is going to let you down. Some of you know this from firsthand experience. The only way you will really find joy, peace, hope, identity, is knowing, trusting, and following Jesus Christ. To be involved in his kingdom. I mean, his purpose, his kingdom. Right now, I know it looks like, wow, where's God? Everything's falling apart. Moral chaos. People are hating God. What's going on in our culture? We're having this moral unraveling. I want you to know, in the end, God wins. I know that because I've read the last book in the Bible. God is triumphant, and he is working out his perfect will. He's accomplishing his purposes. He's drawing people to himself in this present time. If you're saying like, hey, why doesn't God just like judge everything right now? Let me tell you why. Because this is the day of grace. This is opportunity for the lost to be found, for people who don't know love to experience it, to know the living God. That's what's happening right now. Paul is saying, I'll tell you what, living your life with no retreat, that's a life that lives a legacy. I'll tell you that um, in life, you're either going to end up bitter or better suited for his kingdom purposes. Life is hard. It's going to tear you up. It'll take you down to the very essence of your being. And those experiences will either make you a very bitter person and you'll probably move into isolation and you're not going to be a lot of fun to be around and you won't even like yourself probably. Or it'll make you better suited for his kingdom purposes. Better be able to minister to others because you're not the only one that goes through challenges. Just look around. Every single person around you has gone through great difficulty. I mean, just looking around, I've seen some horrendous, difficult things like, whoa, how do you make it through that? You can actually encourage people. And the body of Christ, we need each other. 
We're always communicating, encouraging one another. We need each other. Friends, that's what it means to live a legacy, to live your life with no retreat. You see, the race isn't over until you cross the finish line. And that means that if you're still here, there is still love to be shared. There is joy to be given. There is hope to be known. God wants to do his work in you and through you. Like it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's at work. Finish strong. No retreat. You want to live a legacy, do you? Do it with no reserve. Do it with the mindset of no retreat. And finally, live your life with no regrets. Take a look at verse 8. You see, the reason that Paul had the right passion and the right priorities is because he was living for the right prize. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Did you see that? You see, Paul isn't living for the here and now. You see, God had helped him to see that to truly experience joy, to live a life of a worthy legacy, you've got to live past the here and now. You live for eternity. You live for the joy of being in his presence. And notice what he says here, in the future. Do you see that? Yeah, he's going to get killed. It's going to be ugly. It's, it's terrible. But that's just a dot on the line of eternity. He's looking to the future. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. So the word crown, the Greek word Stephanos. So if your name is Stephen, your name means crown, okay? That's where it comes from. And it was a crown plated with gold. It was given to dignitaries, military victors. And if you were a great athlete, you would get this like crown. It'd be gold plated. And it was like really cool, right? Well, Paul is saying, I'm living for the crown of righteousness. You see, it's a future crown that we receive because we, it's our present reality. You see, you and I, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, you see, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He is the eternal Son of God. He entered into humanity, incarnation, right? It's the Christmas season. He was born. He lived a perfect life. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. That's what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't come to abolish the law and get rid of it. No, I came to fulfill it. I'm going to fulfill every aspect of it, meaning he is, in his humanity, completely righteous. So we have one who is the eternal Son of God. He is fully God, truly human. He fulfills all the law's demands, and he dies as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He doesn't have sin. No, he bears our sin in his body on the cross. And what does he do? He then, by virtue of his resurrection, gives us his righteousness. Everything perfect about him gets transferred to our account. All of our sin gets transferred to him. That is the gospel. And this crown of righteousness, it is the future eternal celebration for all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's the crown of righteousness. You've been made right with God, not by virtue of anything that you've done, but by everything that he has done and accomplished on your behalf. And he says, I'm going to receive it on that day. Do you see that he says in verse 8? In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, can't you just see Paul picturing this? Which the Lord himself, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. The day in which he appears before the living God. And he says, I I want you to know I am living for that. It's the day in which you will stand before the living God. And you and I will never be judged for our sin because Jesus was judged in our place. But we will be evaluated and rewarded by what we did with what God gave us. And we will receive this crown of righteousness, Paul says. He says, I'm living For that, eternal glory in the presence of the Lord himself. That means everything to me. That gives me the right perspective in this life. And uh, I have to ask you, are you going to get the crown of righteousness? What do you think? You want to know the answer to that question? Well, I can tell you. Did you see it? It's actually right there in verse 8. He says, It's the Lord who's going to give me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, oh, here it is, but also to all who have loved his appearing. His appearing, speaking, it's epiphania is the word there. It's speaking of his second coming. And so like when an emperor would come and visit, it was referred to as the epiphania. His appearing, the emperor's here, And what Paul is saying is like, there is going to be the second coming of Jesus. Just like he came the first time and was promised, and he did. Remember, he promised, he says, I'm coming back. Oh, yeah, I know, most of the world not thinking about the second coming of Jesus. But Paul is. He says, it's his coming that I'm looking for. But the question is, are you going to get the crown of righteousness? Is that for you? The answer, it's found right here. Do you love his appearing. In order to really love the second coming of Christ, well, you have to love his first coming. You have to be in love with Christ, that you love him. You're trusting in him. Your commitment and devotion is to him. Your faith is in Christ. And if you do, you're going to find that Christ himself is going to give you his crown of righteousness. It's our present reality right now. We've already received it by faith. It's going to be the eternal celebration. Forever, we'll just be overwhelmed by the tremendous grace and the goodness of God. We'll be always awed and thrilled with his righteousness and all that he's accomplished, how good he is. Friends, that is our future, and that's what Paul was living for. You know, the world, it places so much emphasis on the here and now, right? It's all about, I need this title. I need this position. I need to make this amount of money. I need to have this kind of savings. I need these kind of investments. I need to win this championship. And I'm not saying those things are wrong or bad. Yeah, it's nice to win, really. It's fine. But don't live for it. For the Christian, yeah, those things are nice, but they pale in comparison to eternity. His presence, his crown, his righteousness, his joy. You know, some people, um, like it said, you know, they, they kind of put up their ladder, and they start climbing that ladder, 
And they're scaling to the top of that building, right? And there's a lot of folks that are just climbing the ladder, right? And it doesn't matter who you step on or like, my family's in the way for me to take these next three rungs. I'll just kind of get rid of them too, you know? And you just kind of scale up that and what they find, you know, after they've scaled to the top of the ladder or got as far as they could, they've discovered they've been climbing the wrong building. Friends, you want to live today in a way that you will not regret tomorrow. You want to live today in a way that you will not regret tomorrow. You want to see someone who's got real regrets? Would you? Well, I'll show you. Why don't you keep reading? Verse 9, he says, make every effort to come to me soon. Uh, Here he is, verse 10. For Demas, having loved this present world, he has what? Deserted me. Demas. Interesting case study, because you know he appears several times in Scripture. He's even labeled as a co-worker with the Apostle Paul. But do you see that text? But Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. You see, the things of the world were so enamoring that Christ, Jesus, his kingdom, it grew strangely dim, and he walked away. He loved this present world. Who's got your heart? What's got your heart? Do you love the appearing of Jesus? Or do you love the world? Well, that's going to have a lot to say about the legacy you're leaving and living. You see, the convictions we hold guide the life that we live. You know, if you're off track or off mission, it is never too late to get back on. So what is your next step? You know, for some of you, perhaps, like, I have never started a relationship with God. I've never truly believed in Jesus. Yeah, I'm familiar a little bit. Why, you want to begin by knowing him and his love, experience his forgiveness, recognizing your sinfulness has created this huge gap of separation, and put your faith in him. Trust Jesus now. But perhaps your next step is, like, you got to put an end to something. Maybe there's something that you're doing and things have got to change. Make that decision now. What is your legacy? Perhaps you need to involve yourself with other Christians. It's like, yeah, I make an occasional appearance at church. Like, no, are you involved with other Christians? Are you known? Do you have community? Are you in a life group? Do you have friends in the faith? Have you built relationships? Maybe it's an opportunity to be involved in a ministry. You have things to offer. What is going to be your legacy? There's all sorts of ministry opportunity. The kingdom is moving forth, and God is continually bringing people to a place of just fully yielding themselves. What is that for you? Maybe it means to to give regularly to the Lord's work and his kingdom work. Maybe to give more. Maybe to give sacrificially. Maybe to just pour it out. But I want you to think about it. Maybe, maybe your next step is to develop a personal mission statement. I want you to know, for me personally, this has been so extremely helpful. Um... For decades, I've had mission statements for my life. It's changed over a while. The one that I have presently, I've had for about 15 years. But having a personal mission statement, it is guiding. It is guarding. It helps me make decisions. When I, I need, like, revival, like we sing, I need God to revive my heart, just praying through my mission statement, it only takes about 30 seconds, can once again set me back on the trajectory of dependence and delight upon God. And so a well-thought-out mission statement is like a compass to a well-lived life. And if you're like, hey, 
how do you even develop one? Sounds cool. Not sure how to go about it. Let me tell you. First thing you want to do is think it through. What is it that you really value? What has God called you to? Hey, 20 years from now, what would you like people to say about you? Like Sally or Bill or whatever your name is, this is who they are. What would you like to be said about? What do you most value? Integrity, joy, love, hope, honesty. What, what is it that you value? And so what you want to do is think it through. So start writing it down. It never comes out perfect on the first draft. Like this is going to take weeks, months, maybe even years. It's all right, no rush, but get going on it. And so write it down. And then the second thing, you think it through, and then you, you write it down. You kind of thought it through, and now you're writing it down. You want to be 40 words or less. You want it to be motivational and memorable. Like, it'd be really cool if it could, could fit on a T-shirt. Like, oh, okay, it works. And so you start writing it down. It's going to take multiple drafts. And then once you do, then try it on. Like, you read it, like, is this me? You know, like, is this what God, is this what you're calling me to do? Like, to live like this. So you try it on. See if it fits. And then finally, once you've landed, and it's a process, then just live it out. So post your mission statement. Like, write it out and put it on your mirror, okay? So you're looking at you, then, like, you're looking at what is God calling me to be. Put it on the back of your mobile phone. Put it on your computer screen, maybe in your car, but you, you start to see it. You'll quickly memorize it and learn to use it, to, like, think about it, pray about it. It'll recalibrate you. It'll help you with your decisions, and that's what you want to do. You see, a well-thought-out mission statement is like a compass to a well-lived life. And so I'll just give you mine. And I've had this one for at least 15 years. And it's, it's simply this, to walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life that we have in Christ. To walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life we have in Christ. Life is an acronym for loving God, investing in others, following his word, engaging our world. But let me give you some others. Let me give you the Apostle Paul's. We just saw it. To fight the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith. By the way, there are others in our church. In fact, looking around, I see one sitting right here that have that exact same mission statement. Let me give you another personal mission statement. To bring glory to God by striving to be his good and faithful servant through the strength provided by Jesus Christ. Another one from one of our people in our church. Or just simply to make, to make disciples who make disciples. But if you want to have a true north, something that's going to pull you out of the pit, something that's going to recalibrate you, I'll tell you, it's hard to find a better tool, a better skill than having a personal mission statement. A personal mission statement, it's like, it's like a compass. It keeps you going true north. I want to tell you about a a young man. His name is William Borden. Uh, in 1904, William Borden graduated from high school. You might go, gee, the name Borden sounds familiar. It should, because he came from the very wealthy Borden Dairy family. In fact, they were ex extremely wealthy. And so for a graduation present from high school, I mean, big achievement, I want you to be thinking about what you might be getting for graduation or what you received from your high school graduation. Why, his family gave him a trip a year-round trip around the world. Whoa, I got a suitcase, okay? So, trip around the world for a year, suitcase, okay? I don't know. But anyway, he got the trip around the world. And so when he's going around the world and he saw all the different cultures, his heart became really troubled by what he saw. All these people that didn't know the living God, um, especially when he was in the Near East and the Far East. I mean, he was deeply 
troubled by this. These people don't know Jesus. They don't even know the gospel. And they're worshiping rocks and stones. And they've got it all wrong. They don't really know God. So when he finally got back, he was given a brilliant education. He went to Yale University. Then he followed that up by going to Princeton Seminary. It was while he was in school that God had really set it upon his heart that he was to go and to reach the Muslims in China who were living in utter darkness. So when he graduates from school, at the age of 21, uh, his family wanted him to take over the family business. He was brilliant, and he could have lived the absolute lucrative life. It would have been ridiculous. And he was smart, but he says, you know, I can't do that because God has called me to be a missionary in China to the Muslims living in total darkness. <laughs> they simply couldn't do it. They pleaded. They did everything he could um, to get him to change his mind, but he wouldn't do it. In fact, he gave away his fortune. In fact, a better way of saying it is he invested it in God's kingdom, in the work that God was doing in the church, in the world. At age 23, uh, he became a trustee at Moody Bible Institute. So uh, here he is. He's on this trajectory. When he finishes college and seminary, he writes in the back of his Bible, no reserves. And then when he's at Moody Bible and he is serving as a board of trustee and he's preparing to be a missionary, he gives his final $500,000 away. Uh, to give you equivalent of what that was, that's, that's in today's dollars, over $15 million. At the back of his Bible, he once again goes, and so he has no reserves, and then he writes the words, no retreat. And then at the age of 23, excuse me, on his 26th year, in 1913, he leaves to go out on his mission, and he sets sail for Egypt. But by the time he arrives in Egypt, he's contracted cerebral meningitis. Excruciating, painful. And within a month, he dies there in Egypt. While he lays there dying, he picks up his Bible, and at the back of his Bible, he writes these words, no regrets. After he died, uh, someone found his Bible, was going through it, and they discovered at the back that he had written this, no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Today, in an abandoned graveyard at the end of a trash-filled alley, you will find the tombstone of William Borden. In fact, there is a picture of it. It says, 1887 to 1913. At the very end of the inscription, it simply says this. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You see, the convictions we hold guide the life that we live. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so absolutely powerful. You've given us food for our souls, truth to guide us, life in Christ. You're calling us to further kingdom influence, greater love in Christ. So, Father, if there's someone here today who's never truly trusted you, would they just pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin.
today I believe in Jesus. I need forgiveness. I need life. I need hope. I need peace. I need you. And Father, for those of us who do know you, Lord, would you fashion and form in us a heart to fully give ourselves to you, to fight the good fight, to finish the course, and to keep the faith. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name.